Welcome to the Here Be Dragon podcast. I am joined today uh, by Brett Landry, our senior pastor here at Christ City Church. And our guest today is Dr. George Guthrie. Uh, Dr. George Guthrie is a professor of New Testament at Regent College here locally, author of a number of books. Uh, It's good to have you here. Thanks, man. It's great to be with you guys. Yeah, thanks for taking time in this season and coming to sit down with us. Now, sitting down, of course, in this season means that we're sitting around three large tables at opposite ends of those tables. And uh, here we are, you know, about two and a half, three meters apart. And uh, by God's grace, we can be together still in this way. We're kind of social media distancing, I guess. That's right. Right? That's right. (laughs) George, I I would love it if uh, a lot of your books have been on the book of Hebrews. Uh, you're, You're killing it on the book of Hebrews. I don't know how else to say that. Well, when we want to know what something means in Hebrews, right, we, we, right, we open his commentary right. on Hebrews and we go, yeah, yeah, this is what it says. Right. Yes. Yeah, I love that book. Yeah. I do. Awesome. Still do. Still <laughs> yes. live. I'm as excited about Hebrews today as I was 35 years ago. So, so I'm hoping you could, you could bring some real just pastoral, timely wisdom, encouragement, comfort from that book uh, for us uh, today. Uh, beginning, uh, if we can, I would love it if you would unpack uh, the concept or the idea of faith as it's expressed in the book of Hebrews specifically. Right. Yeah, you know, we, we normally think of Hebrews chapter 11 as the great hall of faith. I mean, obviously that's uh, a lot of what's going on there, but that chapter plays a really important role in the bigger picture of what's going on in the book. So maybe what I can do is start with just kind of giving an overview yeah, you, you, of you how Hebrews yeah. works, and, um, and then we can come to where this uh, theme of faith fits in the book. So when I'm, when I'm teaching on Hebrews, one of the things that I say is you can kind of boil Hebrews' message down to this idea, that your perseverance in the faith will be directly proportional to the clarity with which you see who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on our behalf. So, so the identity of Jesus, you know, if, um, if you can be clear on who Jesus is, and then the nature of the gospel, basically, uh, the decisiveness of the forgiveness we have in the new covenant that Jesus has established, um, then that will help you actually in your perseverance. So what, what Hebrews does is it lays the foundation for endurance with theology, with thinking rightly, because people live out of the way they think about the world. And so in terms of Hebrews and its context, are these believers who are going through some sort of hard time? What's the actual context of the book itself? Yeah, there's a lot of debate about that. Um, Many scholars today would say that uh, what is clear is that these folks are going through a time of enhanced persecution. Mm -hmm. So they haven't been martyred yet. You can see that at the beginning of chapter 12, but uh, the stakes have really gotten higher they are starting to get a lot of pushback from their cultural context. I think Rome is a good guess on where they are, uh, probably in the mid-60s, right before Nero's persecution took off and, and became very, very intense. You know, those things are debated. We, we kind of discuss those things um, in scholarship, but I think those are, are good guesses. But, but basically, these are people who have become very marginalized in their culture, and a lot of pressure is starting to be applied to them. And so uh, it's, it's becoming costly to hang in there as believers, as followers of Jesus. 
I would love for you to talk about then, uh, having given us the overall structure of the book of Hebrews, uh, the role that Hebrews 11 plays uh, in, in all of this and developing that argument and encouraging the believers. Yeah. So, so what Hebrews does in building our understanding of Jesus, um, you have this kind of movement back and forth between teaching about Christ from the Old Testament especially, and then exhorting people. Uh, in what they need to do about it. And, and you guys know what this is like, because as, as pastors and preachers, almost every week what you'll do is you'll give a point that you want to make, unpack the text of the scripture, and then you turn to the congregation, to us, in essence, and you say, okay, guys, this is what we need to do about this. Right. You know, so you're, you're flowing back and forth between doing good kind of exegesis and theology to saying, okay, let's think about the implications of this as we live in Vancouver today, right? So Hebrews does that. Uh, the first couple of chapters of the book focus on Jesus in relation to the angelic beings, that he is so much greater than the angels that there's no comparison there. And then that one who was exalted above the whole universe also became lower than the angels in order to suffer. Uh, Jesus could not have suffered and died if he had not been human. So moves from exaltation to incarnation. And then the author goes into uh, a section of, of exhortation and saying, okay, so this is, this is how we need to think about uh, being faithful people. And he gives positive and negative examples. Then he, he, in the center section of the book, he goes into a comparison of Jesus with the Levitical priesthood. And he talks about Jesus' appointment as high priest. And then he talks about the superior offering of Jesus as the high priest. And that's the, that's the big center section. And then uh, when you get to chapter 10, verse 19, everything from there on in the book is exhortation. So he, in, in big, big picture, the author lays this huge foundation of thinking about Jesus's uh, exaltation. He's the Lord above the whole universe. His incarnation, he's the one who came down and suffered and died. Because he was human, he was taken from among people and made a high priest. He's appointed as a priest who's superior to the Levites, and he has an offering that is just so much greater than the Levitical uh, offering because it's an offering that only had to be made once. It was made with his own blood, not the blood of, of goats and animals. And it is an offering that actually was taken right into heaven. So as our high priest, he was able to go into the very presence of, of the Father. Uh, and so then... He, he takes the whole last third of the book, you know, starting at, at 1019, and it's this rolling exhortation. You have these different kinds of exhortations that, that in essence are saying, hey, hang in there, persevere uh, in following the Lord. And chapter 11 is, it's almost like you come up over uh, a bluff uh, in Hebrews chapter, the end of Hebrews chapter 10, and you're looking down on this great big flowing river that is Hebrews 11, and it's all of these examples of, of faith that the way that we really need to live for God in the world is, is by trusting him. You've got basically, you know, summarizing it down into, you know, something that fits inside my small brain. You've got the first 10 chapters, nine and a half into the, in, you know, into the 10th chapter, of just setting the stage of what is true about the nature and character of Jesus Christ. That's right. And then you've got from the second half of chapter 10 on through the end of the book of Hebrews telling us what to do about that. 
That's true. Now, the, the only caveat I would say there is he, he actually starts telling us what we need to do earlier. So in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that's exhortation. So he, what he does is he comes up for air. You know, he'll, he'll do Christology for a little while, and then he'll come up for air and say, okay, let's think about the implications of this. And then he'll go back to Christology with the next step. And when you say and then, Christology, George, you mean? Teaching about Jesus. Okay. Just yeah. kind of unpacking, especially taking... Old Testament passages that are kind of the basis for what he's going to say, and then unpacking those. So he gets to the end of chapter 2, and before launching into all the high priestly stuff that really starts in 4.14 and following, he um, he kind of uh, gives positive and negative examples. He, he exhorts in real specific ways. Uh, and then he goes back into, into the Christology or the teaching about Jesus. Uh, and then you've got the big center section that's this long flowing piece. Um, and, and then it comes to that great rolling exhortation at the end. I think, so for, from my perspective, talking to people about reading their Bibles, you know, mm-hmm. in specific, you're the professor of New Testament studies, um, you know, that's your specialty. Talking even about the New Testament, I think Hebrews, probably fair to say, is one of the more misunderstood books or one mm. of the more... I don't daunting books to enter into, and and maybe just speak to. I mean, this is you're giving us the overall structure, but why does it feel like it's a little bit daunting in that way? Right. Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is just uh, maybe my my lack of clarity in explaining what I just explained illustrates. Uh, you know that you have these twists and turns in the book. It's it's like uh, you know if if suddenly someone came to Vancouver on vacation. And they got dropped right down in the middle of the city, and someone said, um, "Okay, just make your way over to Stanley Park." Right. You know, right. Um, it would it would feel so disorienting. You really wouldn't know how to get where you were going unless you had guidance that was saying, "Okay, you know, go down to this street, take a left, and then make your way down to this main street." You know, that that kind of thing. As Pat and I have lived here now for almost two years. We finally feel like we know our way around. I don't need GPS for everywhere I'm going. Um, Hebrews is kind of the same way. You, you have all of these sudden uh, stops and turns to something else, and then he picks back up where he left off, and he's going again. So I think one of the reasons why it feels daunting is you really have to understand how it works, you know, in this movement back and forth between exposition and exhortation, right? So that's one of the things. It's not a a nice developing outline that's that's just point one, point two, point three. It's really moving back and forth, uh, but that's very powerful if you once you understand what he's doing with that. So that's one thing. The the other thing is it's so saturated with the Old Testament, um, and the author actually uses a lot of uh, rabbinic techniques of argumentation. So rabbis, teachers, Jewish teachers from the first century, he uses uh, some of their ways of kind of arguing that that would have made perfect sense in that culture. But we have to kind of get clued in to what's going on there. Uh, some of the logic is, is very kind of ancient Jewish type of logic. Interestingly, um, when I've taught in Israel, um, I've had a class full of Jewish students, you know, they're believers, followers of Yeshua, but they're, they're Jewish. And uh, when we go through something like the whole thing on Melchizedek in chapter seven, it's just thick with this kind of ancient Jewish logic that my Western students, they, they go, what is this 
about we you know, went, that kind we of went thing. through Hebrews as a staff a little while ago, and, and there was a bit of a slogging through the Melchizedek section, or did we skip it? No, no, I don't think we skipped it. <laughs> oh, please think, tell me you didn't no, skip no, it. We didn't skip it. We sort of looked at it and we're like, you know, this is a great staff devotional, and if one of us had spent 10 hours preparing, yeah. it'd be really impactful because yeah. it's a really beautiful Sorry, thing. Sorry, George, to cut yeah. you off there. Yeah. No, no, that's okay. But with my Jewish students, uh, I get to the end of that section, and they're like, well, of course. I mean, this makes perfect right. sense. You know, <laughs> what's the problem? You yeah. know, um, I think I think that's what I said at staff meeting. Actually, yeah. Like, yeah. What's the confusion? This is very simple reading. I don't understand what's wrong with it. If you yeah. haven't read that section of Hebrews, go read it now, and you'll know what we're talking about. Yeah. So when when you think about Hebrews chapter eleven, here's a, here's a good example. Um, there are two kind of rhetorical devices that are used in that chapter. Uh, these are these are ways to make uh, a speech beautiful or powerful, okay? Um, and these were very common in the ancient world. So one of the things the author does is he uses what is called anaphora, and that's repetition. So it's not a mis- it's not just by chance that you have repeated over and over and over and over and over again by faith so and so by faith so and so by faith so and so. It's like a drumbeat, you know. It's like a, a piece of music that has this, this compelling beat that you walk away from it and then you can't get it out of your mind for three days, that kind of thing. It's just drumming it into your mind. So the author is uh, using that repetition to do the second rhetorical beautiful thing, which is called an example list. This, um, this idea of an example list was you used loads of examples so that once you got to the end of the section with all of your examples, everybody in the room is shaking their head and going, okay, got it. And in this case, what he does is he kind of takes his examples from biblical history and time after time, after time, after time, after time, he shows how marginalized people trusted God in difficult situations and whatever happened in the situation, God commended them and said, well done. And so they trusted God, even though they were marginalized, even though they were in uh, difficult situations. And, um, and over and over and over again, God either does some miracle that brings about deliverance or at, at points he doesn't. That's one of the interesting things about the example list. You have different kinds of outcomes. But the, the author's point is that Always, in every case, the thing that, that kind of glues them all together is God commends them. He, he applauds them, celebrates their faith. That's, that's really the main point. And it's, in particular, the faith that perseveres through turbulent times. That's, that's the idea that you're highlighting here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that they're drawing this example list with the thumping and the pounding of the repetition to say this is a group of people who've done something because they've depended upon God. Yeah, that's right. There's always, there's always a tension in every story. The tensions are different kinds. It may be someone not, not being able to have a child. Uh, it may be God telling someone to do something like Noah, you know. Um, Abel, oft, you know, Abel's was just, he was just doing the normal thing that he was supposed to do, which was offering a certain kind of sacrifice to God. Uh, you have all these different kinds of examples, but there's some kind of tension built into the story that they trusted the unseen God so that then things were brought about in the circumstances and um, and manifested the presence of God 
in the real world as people trusted him. Fantastic, George. So, I mean, the next question coming out of that then is as we kind of have that big sort of theology in place, and I really, really appreciate that, uh, getting down to the pastoral living this out, mm-hmm. what, what, is the Hebrews, uh, what does the author of Hebrews mean by the word faith? What, what, what does this mean? And, and how might this apply to, to a very real situation mm-hmm. that we're in right now? Well, there's good news and bad news here. Okay. <laughs> Hebrews There's actually like a lot of that lately. Yeah. A lot of good news, bad news. <laughs> Hebrews actually defines faith for us. That's the good news. Yeah. The bad news is it's really hard to understand what he's talking about. You know, so in uh, cool. In, That's great. Yeah, in Hebrews 11:1, 1, he says, "Now faith." The ESV reads this way: "Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen." So. Uh, let me kind of unpack that a little bit because it, you know, it, it, it makes sense the way the ESV reads it, but let me, let me kind of unpack it, work with it a little bit because the terminology that's used here is actually a little bit difficult to get your head around. So let me see if I can, can do that. So the first word there where he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Um, that Greek term there is hypostasis, and um, it in the ancient world, it referred to something uh, that was firm. It could speak of something that was substantive, so something that you would put your confidence in, okay? Uh, it's a word that can mean a lot of different things, but, but kind of at the heart of it had to do with something that was substantive. So let me give an illustration of that and, and see if this will help. Um, when I was young, my uh, granddad built a treehouse for me and my brother. And um, we were really excited about it. It was up in these pine trees. And so my granddad had, he was out working on it and he had gone in the house. So David and I decided we would get up and go check it out. So we went up into the tree. And the cool thing was there was this like pirate plank sticking out from the side of the tree house. Oh right? no, oh no. <laughs> yeah, and so my brother David <laughs> said, cool. So he, he walks out on the plank and all of a sudden, of course, you know what's coming it wasn't nailed down. Right. So it, it uh, was not a pirate plank. Uh, so, <laughs> so he, you know, shot to the ground 12 feet below or whatever. Uh, and, you know, as a five, and you know, six-year-old alive. or David's something. David's alive to this day. This is, yeah, he is alive. A he's a doctor. Story. He's a okay. doctor back in right. Tennessee, so he's okay. Um, but, but the problem was that there was not uh, a firmness to the situation. It wasn't nailed down. Uh, it, so that board should not have been trusted in that case, right? So there, there wasn't something that was solid that you could actually depend on. Uh, one of the things that this word could be used of in the ancient world was a document, like a guarantee, a down payment kind of thing, um, where you, you came to an agreement and money changed hands and someone gave you a document guaranteeing something. Okay, so, so that word could... Uh, refer to something that you would be able to put confidence in. So some translations say faith is the confidence in things hoped for. Um, it's something that is assurance is not a bad translation. That's a, that's a good translation. But it is grounded in the character of God. That's the main point. What is firm here is not our faith. It is that we are trusting God who is faithful, that God can be does that make sense? Yeah. Can you just tease that out? I want to tease that out for a little bit. Um, the idea that sometimes it feels like we have faith in our faith. So right. if, if I'm having a high confidence in my own belief in God and I'm walking it out really, really well, that everything's going to be okay. 
Right. But faith is not faith in our faith. Faith is in the object of our faith. Yeah, absolutely right. So how do how do I read that with that in mind then? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's that guarantee. It's the you know you, you said that's. I mean, is there a better way to phrase that that's yeah. more helpful? Well, no, I think. Um, well, let me let me use another illustration of that that's relational, because we need to think of it in relational terms, right? It's it's not faith as this kind of abstract uh, ability that I have. Um, it is specifically a relational dynamic. So, for instance, um, if Pat called as I was on my way home today, and I, as a good Vancouverite, pulled over to the side to be able to talk to her on the right. phone, right. Um, and I just said, hey, by the way, what are we having for supper tonight? And she said, well, we're going to have Cajun beans and rice. Now, I don't spend the rest of my time driving home going, wow, I wonder, gosh, I wonder if she's messing with me here, because my wife does not kid around about something as important as food, right? So, I mean, um, what, I, what happens if she tells me that is I start salivating at that point because she know I love Cajun beans and rice. Now, that's what kind what of a, is Cajun beans okay, and rice? Okay, Cajun beans and rice. Okay, so you guys need to come over for this. It's... Yeah. It's um, it's At a this different kind of time, later, it's this kind of this. spicy uh, sausage and beans thing. It's a Louisiana. Well, that was my first question: is, is there meat or is it just rice? <laughs> no, and no, beans no, no, no. It's with Cajun it's, spice. It has uh, sausage. Oh, like this guy's from Tennessee. I don't think there's fan. anything. No, that's what I'm saying. That's very <laughs> no, but he's but he lives in Vancouver now, and he's yeah, over sure. there. UBC. He's maybe yeah. been hit pretty hard by people who think he should eat sorry, less meat. Sorry, George. Explain. We actually Cajun did. Beans we and actually did have a vegetarian meal this week. Wow. It's so I'm acculturating uh so anyway back to my illustration <laughs> okay so <laughs> which, she, she, which she's was gonna this. she's gonna cook you she's yeah. gonna cook uh cajun beans and rice and so it. it's kind of a of a silly illustration but you know seriously if my wife uh tells me something i know her so well right i know she can be trusted Im- implicitly i mean i just i i'm so confident in in who she is and her character and, and the food thing's kind of a silly illustration of it but but if she told me something and then someone came around and said, hey, Pat's lying to you or she's not going to do that, I, I, would, I would just laugh in their face because I'm, I know her so well. I, uh, I'm so confident in, confident in her character uh, that my trust in her is grounded in my relationship with her and what she has manifested in the world as true of her. Right. So what faith is, is not me kind of working myself up and saying, well, if I can just kind of get my faith meter up, you know, to 60 percent or 70 percent, then God will do something. Uh, No, it is. I trust what God has manifested in the world of himself. Um, And that's that's really what is going on in Hebrews 11 as well. God speaks into the world. God gives promises. God reveals things about himself in his nature. And faith is my active response to what God has revealed is true about himself. When you look at the second part of that definition, it says the conviction of things not seen. And that word conviction, again, is another word, it's kind of hard to get your head around. It, It could mean proof or evidence or something like that. But in the context of Hebrews 11, what it's talking about is Faith is not just kind of a thing in your head. It is something that is put into action in the world. Uh, And so my actions then begin to manifest the reality of the unseen God. So God has spoken into the world, 
I trust him and therefore I act on the basis of his word. And then that puts things in motion in the world that is a manifestation of the unseen God. So um, when the author gets to verse three, he actually says, this is a foundational principle of the universe. Uh, In the beginning, God spoke and so there was nothing and then there became something. Now that, that actually is good astrophysics. Based on the latest astrophysics, we know that there was a time in the universe where time and space and matter as we know it did not exist. So matter is not eternal. God spoke and it came into existence. And so what Hebrews 11 is saying is that we have these times in our lives where we don't yet see the answer to what we need. And yet we do see the unseen God in the sense that he has manifested himself in the world through his word, the way he has acted, the way he has revealed his character. And so what we do is we trust him and we act on the basis of what God has revealed is true about himself. Now, this is profoundly different than our culture's, Western culture's idea of faith, which is a leap in the dark. Right, right. So you know what I'm talking about there? Yeah, it's grounded in something. It is, it is. It's a relationality. Right. There's a relationality to it, like you said, of, of I can trust that he's revealed his nature and character to me. Therefore, when he says he's going to do something, he will. That's right. So faith is not me turning my back on the facts and just leaping out into nothingness. Kind of the, you remember the Indiana Jones and the and the Holy Grail movie? Do you remember that? I, I've seen it. I, I I was not around when it was first made. I'll I'll, I'll own up to that J- fact. Jake's a little younger than us. Gosh, was it that long ago? <laughs> it was. Uh, I've seen the new one with Shia LaBeouf. You guys seen that one? <laughs> where, where Indiana Jones is really old like me. Uh, oh, so. No, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> is there actually a remake of Indiana Jones with Shia LaBeouf? Or I, don't think, just I don't think this is helpful. And Brett, and Brett, by the way, I, I did notice you said old like us. Yeah, no, so you great. put me in the same category as you. Which <laughs> that was generous so of me. Generous. I thought that was generous it of was me. It was so generous. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Jones. in this Indiana really Jones. old movie, uh, yeah. Indiana Jones I remember the, the movie, and I've, I've tried to get my kids to watch it with me. They did not think it was as good as I did. Okay. Okay, but. Anyway, okay, so the point is, in this movie, he gets to, the, to this point, and it's, he's supposed to have faith, and what faith means at this point in the movie is he's supposed to step off into nothingness. You know, uh, it, you know the, I can't remember what it said, but something about the righteous man will have faith or, or whatever, and the way that faith is read is a very common way for our culture to read faith, and that is, you shut your eyes, you turn your back on all that you know to be really true scientifically or whatever, and you just step off into nothingness. Well, that, that is an existential kind of understanding, a modern understanding of, of faith as a leap in the dark. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is, is more in line with what we would call trust. Uh, and it rests not on nothingness, it, it's, um, it's resting on the character of what God has shown himself to be in the world. I love it. I love it, George. And so if you could bring that to bear on the question uh, or the really the pandemic that we find ourselves in right now, um, what are the promises of God, specifically that Hebrews talks about, that should make us salivate now or should mm-hmm. encourage us now or, or satisfy us now in the midst of a time where if I'm being really honest, like I've gone to bed like really fearful. Yeah. Uh, and I've, yeah. I've made the mistake of watching the news before bed 
Um, and, and I've, I've gone to bed with like a pit in my stomach. How, how do I live this out now? What does this mean now? Well, that's, that's a, that's a great question. And, and what I would say is, as I'm right here, we're all processing this together, right? Uh, Because it's, it's very real. Um, we have, all of us have things that we grow to trust in life and, uh, things like, the stock market, the economy, you know, I'm 10 years away or so from retirement age. And, um, you, you try to make wise decisions preparing for that time so that you're not having to go live in your kid's garage, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, we trust medicine and science. So we do normal things in life to try to take care of ourselves and, and stay healthy. Right. Um, so we have all of these things that are not bad things. It's not bad to want the economy to be good. It's not bad to want medicine to find answers, uh, those kind of things. But as Tim Keller says, sometimes we can take good things and make them ultimate things. And that's, that's when they become idols. So what I'm finding myself have to do, have, what I'm having to do is pull myself back from focus on those temporal things as ultimate things. And, and drag myself, if you will, to the feet of Christ and say, Lord, I, I want to get to know you better in this time. Yeah. I, wanna, I want to walk with you. I want to respond the way Scripture says that I need to respond. And, and Hebrews is not about um, the outcomes. What's very interesting about Hebrews 11 is you have different kinds of outcomes. You don't even have a healing, by the way, in Hebrews 11, which is really interesting. I, unless you take resurrection as kind of an ultimate healing. Some people were, were resurrected or raised from the dead. Um, but, but what you do have is you have some people who get delivered from things that were devastating and huge crises in the world. You have others that trust God all the way through uh, very hard, difficult things, even to the point of death, and they trust God. And yet Hebrews celebrates both groups equally. So, so what I would say, Hebrews would, would say to us in this moment, is it's more of us kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, so what is my posture vis-a-vis God at this point? Is my Christian, Christianity being shown to be just kind of a Christian veneer that actually sits on top of all these really foundational things for my life, like the economy and my health and stuff like that? Or... Is there something deeper to my faith that says when you tear all of those things away, what is really there at the, the foundation yeah. is my relationship with the Lord himself. And, and I think, and Brett, I'd love you to speak to this too. It almost takes a situation like this to expose those things in our life uh, where, where I think I've preached this and you've preached this and I'm sure you preach this too, George, where we say these things, you know, what are those ultimate things in your life? And what are those idols? And we all give, you know, lip service to the things that most readily come to our mind. And we don't deal with like, the deep down realities of our hearts in, in a lot of this. And it takes all this tragedy, all this sorrow, you know, I'm on, I'm on the phone today and I know you're on the phone today, Brett, with, with people who've lost jobs, who've lost substantial amounts of money, who've lost their business. The list goes on and on and on. What is the unique role, Brett, that tragedy and hardship uh, plays uh, in, in doing this in, in people's lives? Well, I think historically we can see that God uses these things, like you said, to draw us back to himself. I, I think we're... 
in a certain sense, the church becomes, and I think individually as Christians, we can become like a, a Frankensteinian monster where we have the core essentials there, but then we keep bolting things onto it and calling it a necessity in our life. And and the image that just comes to me is that picture of of kind of that Frankensteinian monster, but but bolting pieces on that you go, this doesn't actually fit that way. So like like if God is good, then then my retirement portfolio will will look good. And if God is good, I'll be able to afford to buy that home that I want one day. If God is good, I will be able to. And then you start filling in blanks. And what you've done is you've put God on the witness stand, and you're accusing Him of not being good if those things don't work out your way. And so God is good if I don't get this virus. God is good if this local church still exists in a year. God is good if I'm able to, to, to see my children excel in the sports programs that are all closed right now. And I mean, you just fill in the blanks. All of these things that are kind of like they became necessities to us in lots of different ways, whether it be financially or whether it be just even vocationally. Like I, God is good if I can live out my vocation and not have to retrain for something else that's more needed in this world today. God is good if my income is consistent. And I mean, we're being pushed to the edge of that. And I've preached this an, a number of times, and I'll tell you, I've been preaching it to myself for the last week. Yeah. This stuff, like, like you need to build your joy on something that can't be taken from you. I've said that, I don't know how many times I've said that in sermons. Both of you have been subjected to that <laughs> phrase a number of times, I know. You need to build your joy on something infinitely greater, something that cannot be taken from you, because when all things are taken from you, what are you left with? And it's mm-hmm. you're left with your relationship with the Lord and Savior, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. You are left with your relationship with our Father through the the relationship we have with Christ or, or, or through the work of Jesus in that way. You're left with the infilling of the Holy Spirit as that guarantee or deposit of the mm-hmm. fullness of redemption. You're left, that's all you're left with. Like it says in First Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 3 and, and 4, like we looked at this um, in our uh, self-isolation series, our devotional series, it's on YouTube. But blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then we're, we're, we're born again to this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And for me, and you can keep going because it talks about the trials that you endure in the midst of all of this. For me, I've had to come back to the place where all of those plans that may be well laid with good wisdom and judgment, where all of those have to take a second place mm-hmm. to what God has got us going through right now. And I have to come back to the living hope I have in him, the living hope of the resurrection of Jesus, that there is new life to take hold of. And I mean, I'm telling you, I've had to focus on this. I, you talk about, you know, going to bed with a pit in your stomach and a little bit of fear. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are experiencing this. If you're not, I, I don't know. Maybe you've you know, put your head in the ground a little more than the rest of us, but I know I've, I'm feeling it. And I mean, it's to the point where every time I watch Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's doing an incredible mm. job as mm-hmm. our chief medical officer or whatever her title is with the British Columbia uh, governance and, and the minister Dix getting up and giving these announcements, I get the psychosomatic symptoms every time I watch. It's like every time I watch her give an update, I think, is my, is, is my throat sore? Mm. Am I having a hard time breathing? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's actually anxiety. I don't know if you right. know this, but you can actually elevate your body temperature through anxiety. Right. And so you got all of these things happening at one time, and I'm talking myself back from that ledge on a daily basis, grounding myself in Scripture, because mm-hmm. in Scripture, God tells me who he is. Right. 
Yeah, one, one thing that I want to say to encourage us is when you look at the list of so-called heroes in Hebrews 11, is they are profoundly ordinary people who are flawed. And, you know, some of the examples uh, that are given there, like the Israelites crossing the Red Sea by faith, really? I mean, you, you, you want to kind of go, okay, let's go back and, am I, am I misremembering what I read in, in the Old Testament text? So to me, one of the things that can be wonderfully encouraging as we read the Old Testament story is a lot of these people were messed up. They were struggling with life. They were struggling with their relationships. And so it should give us hope in the midst of our struggles. So, so one thing that I would say to, to myself and to us as a church is uh, don't get down on yourself because you're struggling to, to kind of, you know, get your perspective right and to, to live in trust. Be honest about your fears and the, the difficulties that you're having. You don't have to just put a smiley Jesus face on, you know, that, that kind of thing. We need to be honest about where we are, but the fight for perspective and the fight for trust is, uh, is that's exactly what it is. It, it, it's a fight because uh, the stakes are very high yes. in all this, right? Unprecedented season that we're going through. Yeah. It's, if it wasn't giving us an unprecedented reaction, there would be something wrong with us. Yeah. I, I think, and a greater dependence on Jesus is one of the ways we can respond. Yeah. And the issue is we might not respond, like you're saying, perfectly every time. Right. But by God's grace, we get up the next day and then there's new mercies in the morning. We yeah. get up and we, and we seek his face and we come to him again, fresh and anew, and we say, by faith, yeah. I will endure. By yeah. faith, I will yeah. move through this. You know, one of those heroes that the author of Hebrews doesn't have time to talk about is, is David. Mm-hmm. And reading David in the Psalms oh, lately and to hear his uh, complaints and laments and um, bringing mm-hmm. his struggle before the Lord has given me, I think, great freedom in my prayer life to be like, Lord, please help. Right. And just to cry out that simply, you know, right. uh, with the simplicity that David does. George, I would love to ask you one of the themes in Hebrews that we see uh, is this one of the return of Jesus mm. and looking forward to the return of Jesus. Mm. Um, can you speak a bit about that and how that's intended? And Paul picks this up. Yeah. Jesus picks this up. Like, like how is yeah. Jesus' return meant to impact our following him now? How is it meant to encourage us today? Yeah. Well, I'll go back to Hebrews. Yeah. Uh, Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ will bring salvation with him at the end of the age. Um, salvation in the New Testament has a past, a present, and a future. So th- this is J.I. Packer. Uh, in the past, we were, I think I might have said this in my message that I gave here, I'm not sure, but um, in the past, we were saved from the penalty of sin. When we come into the new covenant, we're decisively forgiven for all of, all of the sins we've ever done, ever will do. If we really are people of the new covenant, we're decisively forgiven. So it has a past. It has a present. At the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. So our, our tendency to, to mistrust God, uh, in a sense, God, by his spirit, is saving us from that mistrust, right? In the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. And so at the end of the age, Jesus will come back and he will bring salvation with us. He will save us from this very conflicted life we live in the flesh uh, here. The way Hebrews 11 talks about it is that these folks who were people of faith, they were longing for a city whose builder and maker is God. 
So uh, it, it kind of rises up above and says, you know, this temporal existence that we have, it's so hard, takes a lot of perseverance. You got to keep hanging in there. Uh, you, it's like you kind of rise up above the clouds and you say, oh yeah, that's, this is what this is all about. Isn't this so awesome? And that's one of the cool things about a moment like this is also God can give us a sense, uh, you know, these moments of clarity when we think, wow, I wonder what God might be doing with this moment. God redeems these kind of moments, right? Turns them inside out for, his, for our good and for his glory, right? Um, and so this, this idea yeah. of the longing and the hope for something more mm-hmm. is enhanced when we're brought face to face with just kind of the, the temporal nature mm-hmm. of, um, you know, the world and the life that we live in. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, at really at the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5, Paul talks about this when he's talking about persecution. And uh, he's putting his own suffering in perspective by saying, you know, when I look at the suffering I'm experiencing, and you, and you look at all the examples that he gives, right? In chapter 11, you know, getting beaten, shipwrecked, put in jail, all these kind of things. And he says, when you look at all that stuff in light of the glory that's being built, the the tonnage of glory, I translate it, the eternal tonnage of glory. There's this mass that's bigger than you can even imagine. He said, there's no comparison because we're looking at the things that are unseen as the, as the greater realities, not the things that are seen. So these moments, what they do is they're, they can give us a grace to look beyond our normal day-to-day stuff that we get caught up in to say, hey, there's something more to all this that's really awesome. Historically, you know, you talk about the, all of this happening, and this is, this is going on through Old Testament. This is being brought into the New Testament. Mm-hmm. There's a vision of a new home in this way. But historically in the church over the last 2,000 years of Christian mm-hmm. history, would you highlight some places where you've maybe you, you know where we could trace it and say yeah this is what it appears to be there was a tremendous amount of suffering and there was a tremendous mm-hmm. renewal in the church there was tremendous pain and sorrow and, and difficulty and yet we see something happen is that something that we can highlight yeah um I'll, I'll give one example i'm not a church historian so you know my examples are going to be fuzzy in a sense but you know in uh in those first centuries of the church you had a couple of dev devastating plagues, at least a couple in the Roman Empire. And uh, what actually happened at that time, um, I think it's Rodney Stark who talks about this, uh, you know, his historian. And um, you have these moments in which everybody's dying. I mean, and, and what happens is the pagans are fleeing the city. They're leaving their own family behind to die and they're getting away from them because they don't want to die too. And what happens is the believers, the Christians, step in to care for their pagan neighbors because they're being abandoned. And so the believers come in, and it's from their eternal perspective. You know, they have a perspective that says that life is about more than just now, that they are able to step in. And actually, it's a tremendous impetus for the gospel because the believers manifest, and here you go, this goes back to Hebrews 11, they put into action what they believe to be true about the unseen God, and that manifests God's presence in the world in such a way that the church is enhanced and really goes forward at that point. I even think of the way that 
trace the the development and the growth of the church, you know, fast forward, uh, you know, 1800 years or, or, or 1700 years from the plagues you're speaking of, and you talk about what happened after 9-11 in Manhattan. Mm. And all of a sudden, a lot of churches that were not heavily populated before, there was a real growth, and right. then there was a massive movement of church planting. Right. And you see a lot of people come to faith in those seasons. Yeah. And I, I have to believe that this is going to happen around the world today. You know, and it's not necessarily something that we would maybe equate to a, a virus like this, but you, you look at what's happened in different persecuted nations. You know, the fastest growing church in the world is in Turkey. Mm. And you have the, 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 we know of in this way, but there's more people coming to Christ under, you know, a fairly heavy regime at the moment. Or pardon me, I said Turkey, I meant Iran. Iran, yeah. It's happening in Iran where there's, there's wonderful things going on. You know, we all know people who've done work in China, particularly over the last 25 years, and, and some of the openness and some of the closedness that goes on. The pressure in that environment actually creates a real robust Christianity where people know how to endure. And and when this type of thing happens, it's the church who stands up with an yeah. eternal perspective and go, hey, we understand what this looks like. And so in a certain way, us and our decadence in the Western culture that we live in are being given a small taste of what others in history mm-hmm. have gone through with suffering. And I, I have to believe that there's going to be something come of this where people come and turn to God. I think we're already seeing that, actually. Actually, um, I know even with some people around us on the UBC campus, we've just had whispers, you know, people who are not yet believers, but they're really open to spiritual conversations. Um, and, and because of this, they're looking for answers. Uh, so I think, I think it's very likely that we're going to see that. And, you know, we, we pray that the Lord will use it in not only our lives, but our, our friends who, who don't yet know him, right? Yeah, praise God. Not only would it do a refining work in those who are already his in the church and revealing our idols, as we've talked about, but also to would he do a saving work in the lives of people who don't know mm-hmm. him. George, I love what you're getting at, particularly because you're talking about big theological ideas, and you're saying in this time of of crisis and of need, these aren't actually abstract, far away, mm-hmm. you know, scholarly things. These are real-life uh, meant to sustain us sort of things. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a bit about sort of Jesus's return or an eschatology, uh, if you will, when he comes and makes all things new and how that's supposed to sustain us today and now and take our eyes off just this momentary brokenness. Uh, I'd also love for you to speak to uh, just the the priestly ministry of Jesus and, and how that uh, unfolds in the book of Hebrews uh, and, and why that's an encouragement to us now. Okay. Let me give you an illustration to lead into it. Yeah. That, that of here's here's the point that you're making. People live out of what they believe. Yeah. I mean, the way what they believe, the way they think, is going to influence the way that they live. Right. So, uh, one thing I love about our church is we emphasize sound teaching and and theology as foundational for the Christian life. You know, we're we're always going there. There's this great. Uh, a bit from Dorothy Sayers. You know, Dorothy Sayers was a friend of C.S. Lewis's, and she was a great mystery writer and other things. And there was a moment back in the 1950s when people um, were saying, let's just do away with theology or dogma, they called it. Let's just do away with that. Let's just have worship, just worship no matter what. And uh, she said um, that Jesus must have been very much out of touch when... uh, he said to the woman at the well, you worship, you know not what, as if it was important what you worship. And she said, the, the only problem with uh, an ambiguous and undirected worship 
is the practical uh, difficulty of engendering enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. I love it. I, no, that's I didn't I didn't quote it very well, but it's kind of the essence of what works, she was saying. Yeah. yeah. So so the idea is. Uh, what theology does and right teaching does is it gives us a grounding for how to live, right? Because we live out of, the, out of the beliefs that we have. So with the high priesthood of Jesus, the two most important uh, dynamics there that I would just emphasize are, first of all, uh, if you ever get your head around how decisively we've been forgiven in the new covenant, it will change you. Can you just spend some time there? Yeah. Um, well, I think I can. Uh, so <laughs> what Hebrews is doing is Hebrews is, is playing off of the uh, New Covenant passage in Jeremiah 31, 31 through uh, 34. And, um, you know, the last l- bit of that says, and I will remember their sins no more, right? And so Hebrews is going to riff on that and say, what that means is, that there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. That's Hebrews 10, 18. Uh, and and what, he's, what he's saying is, you know, Christianity is not just another religion that you line up against all the other religions and you say, well, you know, this one isn't working out so well, so I'm going to go back over to this other thing here. Uh, if what was going on with Hebrews is some people were being tempted to kind of say, well, this following of Yeshua is not working out, so I'm just going to go back to kind of mainline Judaism. If that is one of the one of the things that was happening, the author is saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus' sacrifice, his death, has done away with any other basis for approaching God. You know, it's it's just done away with it because it's dealt with it so decisively. It's the only way that you can hope to come right into the presence of the living God is through Jesus himself. And so um, if you ever get your head around that, that from a New Testament standpoint, if you are in the new covenant, you are not guilty. You're not guilty before God. That will change you. Now, we're linear creatures, so... There are times that I will sin and I will even ask, you know, have to ask Pat for forgiveness because I've done something or said something stupid. So we're linear and we, we live in this kind of way. And, I may, and I'll come before the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I agree with you. That was, that was wrong, you know, for me to do that. But we need to understand that in the new covenant, the forgiveness is already there. It's already been dealt with and paid for. And that's kind of hard to get your mind around because we're dealing with, with something that is kind of transcends our linear nature and... Um, does that make sense? To, yeah, it even speaks to some of what you were getting at earlier in terms of our our future, the, the past, present, and future reality, where we yeah. we can truly understand that we're forgiven sins that we have not yet committed when we live repentantly. Yeah. In 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 that sense, agreeing with God that what we did yeah. or said or didn't do or right. didn't say is wrong. And another way another way to say it too is that um, if I really am in the new covenant, now understand, I may manifest that I don't know the Lord. You know, I may have just walked down the aisle and gotten wet or whatever, you know. Uh, But if I really do have that relationship, if there really is a new covenant relationship, um, I am uh, not going to lose that relationship with the Lord. Uh, That's something that is grounded in the work of Christ that's, you know, that's bigger than me and my actions and that kind of thing. So, um, so you have that kind of grounding in, in the forgiveness of Christ. And then the second 
thing I was going to say, Jake, is therefore what that also gives me is, is an almost audacious confidence to step right into the presence of the living God of the universe. Um, the, even, the way that even I, today, I'm sorry, even today, even, even now. Oh, oh, absolutely, right now, At, right, right in the middle of this crisis. One of the incredible things for believers that we take for granted is that we can step right into the presence of the living God of the universe and talk to Him about this. So, uh, by analogy, uh, Jeff Greenman's the president of Regent College. Jeff's a great guy. He and I have a have a really good relationship. I I just love him and respect him. I never barge into his office. You know, he has a secretary who sits out, administrative assistant sit, who sits outside in kind of the outer office, and then you can go into the Holy of Holies of Regent College, which is Jeff's office. Uh, I never barge in and, and just pass by Mar- uh, Maria and say, I'm going in to see Jeff, you know, if he's in there with a board member or something like that. I never do that. I, I would always set up an appointment, come in and ask nicely, you know, work with whatever. But do, but do you know I have, I have more of a basis for stepping right into the presence of the God of the universe than I have for, for barging into the president of Regent College's office because of what Christ has done. And, and that is, that's, a, that's a, an incredible thing for us to think about. Um, so, so that gives us a basis, a grounding in, in the priesthood of Christ that, that has... Pr- tremendously practical implications for us. I, I can't tell you, George, how much that is good news to me. And, you know, this is not a crying podcast, <clears throat> uh, but um, it, it's strange how, how long it takes you sometimes to bring all that anxiety and to bring all that fear, mm-hmm. to keep it with yourself uh, before, you, before you recognize, hold, hold on a second, like, who, who am I in Christ? And, and what is now true of me that I am in Christ and I can bring mm. it to my Father mm. who loves me. And to even use that language of Father mm. who loves me and is for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you, you have that privilege. Yeah. You have that joy. Yeah. The ability to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Yeah. That's, that's great. I love the image of casting too. That text, that's First Peter, I believe you're quoting. Casting all our anxieties on him for he cares. And. The idea is not like sort of hand them over reluctantly. It's kind of like mm-hmm. chuck them, mm-hmm. throw them, mm-hmm. if I'm understanding it correctly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Throw them upon him because he cares. Not, not because you, you know, because he cares. So cast your anxieties on him and come to him. Uh, Jesus is our high priest, the once and, and, and final high priest. He is also the offering, as you said, in that center section of Hebrews, the offering that ends all offerings, mm-hmm. the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. That's Jesus, our Lord. And uh, gives us this access through that. I, I've, you know, Tim Keller popularized this, um, I don't know, saying or, or illustration, but talking about the kind of access we have, saying, you know, nobody goes, you talk about uh, uh, Mr. Greenman as the president, nobody, nobody goes to a king in the middle of the night and says, can I have a glass of water? This mm-hmm. is, uh, I've heard Keller mm-hmm. use this so many times. Um, it's two, that's two Tim Keller references for this podcast. We've hit our quota. <laughs> there should be a Here Be Dragon sort of like bingo sheet. Yeah, there's right. a Tim Keller podcast. Yeah, mm. that's right. Somebody should make that. But, but he's said this so many times, and he's popularizing a phrase that's been, or a story that's been told, but that's the kind of access we have. Nobody would ever dare go to a king in the middle of the night and say, can you get me a glass of water? Right. But a child can. Yeah. That king's child can go to him. Yeah. In the middle of the night, wake him up and say, Dad, yeah. can I have a glass of water? 
And I think that's that's the point we're trying to drive at is this is this is the story Hebrews is telling us. Yeah. Hebrews is is distilling the story of scripture and telling us that we have that kind of access before the Father. Right. And if we can bring that all all the way around to okay, so what would Hebrews say we need to do as we respond to this COVID-19 situation right now? Well, we we need to rest in the fact that we have a God who loves us. That God is about bigger things in the world than our particular moment at this point at the beginning of the 21st century in Vancouver. He really is. I mean, he's, he's about bigger things in the world than that. And, and the awesome thing is that by his spirit, he can help us very ordinary struggling people to act like it. Wow. And, and that's, that's what faith is. It's, it's acting as if God is really real. And that he really is uh, about something that is uh, bigger than we are and bigger than our particular place and moment in history. And we get to be a part of it. And we need to act like it. Well, Dr. Guthrie, we're so thankful that you'd come on and share this word of encouragement with us. Jake, thanks for guiding us through this and, and, and bringing us to the text of Scripture. And, and uh, we're just so grateful that we can actually have this conversation and uh, for all of those who are listening, I really hope this is an encouragement. We're in the middle of an unprecedented thing in our generation, uh, a once in a hundred year kind of pandemic, the most disruptive thing that has happened since World War II, and none of us have a clue what's going to happen. And there's a lot of pundits, there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of TV personalities, there's a lot of media types who have ideas on how things should go, and that's fine. That's their job to have ideas. We have a lot of doctors, a lot of researchers, a lot of medical professionals, a lot of nurses on the front line that we're praying for because they're working to see an end to some of these things. And in the midst of it, until that, we're asking that God would do magnificent things in the life of his people, that we would come to him in boldness, that we would come to him with courage and recognize the the tonnage of glory that you're speaking of earlier, George. And yeah, we're thankful for you to come on and, and open our eyes to uh, the book of Hebrews a little bit and to point out what it means to live by faith. We're so grateful that we have this opportunity in this season. If you have any questions, if you've got any prayer requests going on right now, uh, we certainly want to talk to you. You can email us info at christcitychurch.ca or prayer at christcitychurch.ca. That's a confidential prayer email that just goes to uh, one of our pastors and um, we would really love to be able to pray for you and with you and whatever needs are going on. And uh, we're aware at this time of isolation that maybe this is the most community that the three of us might have uh, you know, today outside of our families. But we're also aware that for those of you who are listening, it, there's a conversation going on that you're a part of. And we're very thankful that you are taking part of it in this way. And uh, if there's anything we could do to serve you, please let us know. Let me end. I think it's appropriate with how the author of Hebrews uh, ends with this benediction. Let me read it for us. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you, that's equip you, Christ City, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.